People have told stories of the strange and supernatural for centuries. Tales of the restless dead return to haunt the living. Whispers of damned souls doing the devil's bidding on earth. Rumors of inhuman things that still hunt the old forests, untouched by the glare of modern life. There may be more to these stories than you could ever imagine. Join us tonight as we delve into the deeper truth inside these mysteries. And how the devil are you all? Welcome back to the show. Obviously, it's been a while. I did put a rebroadcast out, but has been a long time, though, hasn't it? Yes, we haven't been able to get to together as readily as we hoped. Um, work, you know, other commitments, your so, Tinder profile. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> work's been the main problem, right? Just oh, different is... locations. Normally, we're in the same similar location, but this, you know, this what since Christmas, really? Pretty much. There's yeah. been issues with it the lodgings that we normally have and so we've been elsewhere so it's been a bit of a ball late to say the least yes. so thank you for being with us if you're still here thank you very much and if you are tell a friend subscribe all that good shit check the t-shirts out some of you have thank you for that uh, again t-shirts nothing to do with the show so there's something for everyone go in the description and look up the Grimbarian clothing t-shirt range if there's something that you want that's not there, let us know and we can accommodate. Yeah, much. we can. Yeah, we can edit them out, change yep. the. The only thing we don't things. do is fucking rainbows. No, because they've been opted, co-opted by them fucking transformers. <laughs> so, right here we are. Okay, so today I thought I would, because when we talk about Bigfoot, um, we normally predominantly talk about. Well, if I said Bigfoot to most people, that and then said where was Bigfoot, most people would say what? Yeah. America. Yeah, exactly. America, um, the hills, the yeah, those got sorts so of places. Much, yeah. So, so today I'm going to look at the um, Mongolian slash Russian slash Chinese version of uh, of the same creature. Okay, so predominantly the creature we're going to be talking about today lives in Mongolia. All right, it stands five to six feet tall, covered in reddish brown, even dark hair. In you know, in aspects of its coat, um, has f- humanish face, has hands, all right, very muscular, immense strength, and it can do things that are out of the range of man. Okay, so swimming, running, climbing, these sorts of things, uh, ridiculously fast. And we'll come yeah. on to some of that so- later on because there's, there's examples of that, but. Uh, the creature is said to have a prominent brow, uh, brow ridge and a huge jaw. Alright. So that's what we're talking about. And it's called the Almas, or the Almasti, depending where you look. Um, essentially, Almas just meaning wild man. Alright. So we're going all the way back now. We're going all the way back. We're your favourites here on the radio. We're going all the way back to 1380. And this is Munich. Alright. And a guy called Johann Schitzelberger. Yes, that's yes. his name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, he joined. Eventually, he used to join the, um, the, the, the German army, I suppose, the equivalent of today, mm. Prussian army or whatever it was back then. But he was sent to fight the Muslims in the Battle of Necropolis. All right, and unfortunately, his army was defeated by the Sultan of uh, Barizad, the, the Sultan was called, and he was taken prisoner. Now, normally, this would result in death for most prisoners captured. Yeah. All right. But for whatever reason, the Sultan's son took a liking to Schitzelberger, and he thought he might come in useful. 
whether this was the look of him or maybe he just kept four or five slaves back, you know, people as slaves because they yeah. did keep yeah, people they as slaves, yeah. you know. Yeah, they did keep white people as slaves. Yeah. Well, that was, well, just people <laughs> just, in general. It was just... It, just making know, the point that, you know, yeah, that people was just forget about that slavery. War, wasn't it? But yeah. anyway, he was kept back and he was used um, as a runner in the army. All right, so for the next six years, Sixelberger had to accompany the army uh, and it went all over. It was defeated by the Mongols at some point, and that's where he passed into the hands of the Mongol Khan, right? Um, or Khan Tumor is what Khan Tumor the Lame is what his official name was. But he was passed as a commodity, basically, from yeah. this one into that one. And again, it was used there predominantly as a runner. So because of his language skills um things like that he was used to he followed the army and give messages all right so that's basically what he did and again he is a slave he's not like he can he enjoys what he's doing but he's got to do but yeah and got what this gave him access to was places and people and cultures that the west had never seen all right because the west westerners would not go to these places because they'd be just be killed all right so yeah. It did give him a strange, you know, access to places that, like I say, people would not normally see. So, obviously, with the army and expeditions and trade expeditions as well, he travelled to lots of remote places, including Mongolia, Siberia, Bulgaria, Greece, uh, Turkey, and uh, Mesopotamia. All right? So, we got mm-hmm. about a bit. And again, throughout this, he learned different languages. He kept records of everything he'd seen, the cultures, the geography, the animals, the plants... And this went on for about 30 years. So now we're in 1427. And eventually he was in um, Constantinople. And he, there was an Italian ship leaving. And he heard about this, you know, in, in the pub or whatever. And he stowed away on it. All right. And luckily for him, the ship was going back towards mainland Europe. And he uh, got back to Munich eventually. And when it's he a got. Hell of a journey. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, and when he got back there, so now he's like a 40 year old man now, you know maybe 50 at this point mm. and when he got back to uh, Germany he was going to put his um, memoirs down basically what he'd seen and all the rest of it alright and the foreword to his book actually states this many interesting strange adventures worth listening to you no know? ok so you know I, I, yeah, I'd, I'd be interested yeah so the book came out in 1460 alright I'm assuming he'd have been dead at that point. He's got to be getting on at that point, yeah, seriously. Yeah. But the book obviously told of these places that he'd been, these exotic places that he'd seen, things he'd seen, uh, including like Indian war elephants were mentioned, Siberian dog slaying, strange customs, uh, cultures, you know. And again, like, like I say, places and people that Westerners just hadn't seen. So you can imagine that there was quite a bit of intrigue in this book because mm. you know, it was something new. All right, so you're wondering, why am I telling you all this, right? Well, it's predominantly because of this one passage, let's say, in the book, all right? So, in the mountains of the Mongol, there are savages who are not like other people. They live there. They are covered all over body with hair, except their hands and face, and they run about like other wild beasts in the mountain. Now... He does go on to say that he would not necessarily believe this, right? Until that is, he laid eyes on the creature. 
that had been cu- captured by a local um, well villagers had captured this creature, one of these creatures, and essentially handed it over to the local warlord as like a tribute. Mm. Um, and he was obviously working for this society, and he he was there when this thing was handed over, so he saw it first first hand. So that's the only reason really included in his book. Um, but we get a mention of it there. All right. Yeah. So we're fast forwarding a little bit now, and we're looking at a guy called. This is eight. We're back to we're going up to eighteen seventy, and again. A lot of these people that I'm going to mention now read this book and knew that this guy had basically wrote this book and everything in the book was legitimate, right? And people, later versions of the book might have skipped this bit, might have actually, this been, might have been edited out, right? Because it was too crazy, you know, to put in this book. But again, yeah. the people that knew about this were saying, well, how come 90% of what he's wrote in the book you accept as fact? Right, and but again, the plants one... and things we know about now, spices, etc. But this one piece, you don't accept. You know that sort of thing doesn't make sense to me. No, not really. There's that Plilly the Elder who's very similar. You know, he talks about certain things in there, and ninety percent of what he writes, everybody agrees. And we know now because we've been to Africa and places like this and, and seen what he saw. He was like a Roman scholar, but not, you know. But then there's things in there where he's talking about things like this. And they don't accept that. And it's very strange. But uh, a Russian geographer uh, called Nikolai Prowalski, Prowalski, I think that's what you say it, he, he'd obviously learned, learned about this early on. And it was his ambition to, to sort of go out and see these places. All right. So he went to East Asia, Siberia, Mongolia, the even Gobi Desert, um, China. So you can imagine just some of the things that he'd seen there. Yeah. Again, you know, that people would not necessarily recognise. And just to give an example, he brought back examples of 5,000 different plant species. Wow. Right? 1,000 different birds, 3,000 different insect species, 70 reptiles, um, 130 mammal skins. Yeah? And most of this was unknown to science. There's even uh, a step horse that was found in Mongolia, which actually became known as Pawolski's horse after uh, after him. So, you know, a lot of shit here, right? Yeah. And again, these things documented and accepted, blah, blah, blah. And again, I'm telling you this because of what comes next. So he came back, he wrote five books, right? And his scientific achievements were acknowledged and praised and he was given... Um, awards from the Russian and English Geographical Society. He was promoted in the Red Army to a lieutenant general at the time. Um, which, you know, is no sort of mean feat. You know, this is this is how you got it. I'm trying to get across how, how his work was perceived at the time. This was groundbreaking. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You, you can't imagine, you know, how yeah, it's off. stuff we just take yeah, as facts like today. People, how cut off people were in those days. Mm. You know, travel was a big undertaking in those you know times. You know, like we talk, we talk about traveling certain places that takes people years. Mm. You know, it's not like saying, "Oh, I'm just going to go to Spain for a weekend or Spain for a couple of weeks and just jump on a plane and off you go." You're talking about, "I'm off. Oh, I'm off to Spain. I'll see you in six years." You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a big undertaking, and like lots of people, it didn't have the 
the means to do it for a start. No, and, and it wasn't as and, and the balls to do it. Let, yeah. you know, let's get it right. And th- again, these places are not hospitable, right? So, uh, again, in the book, he writes a passage which basically references his time in Western Mongolia, and he basically says this: "We heard the Mongols talk of some extraordinary animal." which ranged through the province. It was known to the inhabitants under the name of King Grisua, or Man-Beast. We were told that it had a flat face like that of a human being, and it often walked on two legs, and its body was covered in a thick black fur. Its feet and arms were enormous and had claws at the end. It had the strength that was terrible, And not only were the hunters afraid of attacking it, the inhabitants would remove themselves from parts of the country which it was known to visit. We questioned them as to was it a bear. They shook their heads and assured us it was not a bear, adding that they knew very well what a bear was like. Now, obviously you can can understand his scepticism, you can understand why he asked these questions, but these people fucking obviously know what a bear you know it's one of the yeah it's a com- it was common it, back it, in even Europe. now yeah even now you'd know what a bear yeah, is when people see shit it's like oh you saw a bear you know no i saw no. this thing attacking a bear <laughs> no yeah it's it's a lot bigger than a bear it's not the same um yeah. you know and the fact that they actually they actually make a point of saying when we know there's things in the area we fucking just up sticks mm. we tear obviously these probably nomadic society anyway but they move you know they set the tents and um and off they go um he in- included a picture a sketch of there was a medical book and in this medical book there were sketches of certain creatures um so people know what they're looking for if they're looking for a certain ailment or you know say you had this particular rash and you needed a certain lizard or whatever yeah. there's a picture a, a comp a draw picture obviously but accompanying the the animals, so people know what they was looking for. And in this medical book, which he, he laid eyes on, there was actually a sketch of one of these almasties in there. And again, you know, it was very, you know, human slash monkey-like. So, you know, people had seen this. Um, again, you know, the wild man lives in the mountains. His origin is close to that of a bear. This is what the, the people there believed, okay? His body resembles that of a man. Apart from he has this extraordinary um, strength. But it said in the medical book that his meat can be eaten to treat mental disease, gall um, gall issues, uh, and um, jaundice. Right, okay. Right? So these are examples of, of uses for this creature. Although it does say, you know, many people wouldn't undertake the task of capturing one of these because it is, it's, it's very hard. dangerous. Yeah. yeah. All right, so as you can imagine, from all this, he had a lot of unanswered questions about this beast, and he was planning on setting out on another trip to go and explore just this creature alone, right? So obviously, I told you before, he'd come back with thousands of plants and thousands of birds and thousands of all these things, but he was going to go just to look for this creature. Right, okay. Unfortunately, he died. The year bef- just slightly before the expedition was about to set out, he actually died. So he didn't get to um, didn't to do get it. To find it. All right, but there was another geographer in the ni- early 1900s called B.B. B. Barden. All right, and again, he'd read 
the previous works on this th- creature. He knew about um, this creature. And he, again, when he went to conduct surveys in Mongolia and Tibet, he asked people about these creatures. That was one of his questions to ask people. And then, yeah. Yeah. Well, there was a, there was a guy... Um, well, he was travelling through the Gobi Desert. It was 1906, and he was in a caravan of camels. And uh, you can buy camel milk in Asda, they'll tell you this. Yeah, you fucking did. camel milk. I don't want to try that. It sounds. It does sound disgusting. It, it sounds like it'd have hair in it. It sounds like it's sour. Yeah. I don't know why. Yeah. I can imagine well, it having hair in it. And presumably it comes out of a ca- camel's tit, like, same mm. as the cow, not... Yeah, but not... camels are hairy. Well, yeah, I don't know. So I can just see... I, can just, uh, I suppose goats are, but oh, yeah, I don't know. I'll get it. Sounds gross. If um, if you get another 1,000 subscribers, I'll drink a can of it live on air. <laughs> oh. I'll film it as well. Okay. Be... <laughs> anyway, so where, where was it before you interrupted me? Um... Yeah, so he's heading out in a, a caravan, caravan of camels uh, across the Gobi Desert, and the the lead uh, guy screams that he can see a creature. Obviously, uh, he runs forth to have a look, and he stood with this guy. And just on this sand dune, if you can imagine, it's sort of getting dark, and just sort of elevated above him, there's a sand dune, and there's this creature, mm. or what he thought was a man, essentially at first, looking back at him. The only, obviously, the only thing about this guy was he was huge, muscular, uh, and he could see that he was covered in hair from head to toe. And he just watched the camp. He just watched. Um, didn't approach, didn't run away. He just watched. And again, this is common in nowadays Bigfoot sightings. You know, people will report the very same uh, behaviour. And that's kind of what, that's kind of the purpose of what I'm doing here today is to give people an, an idea of other cultures that have similar issues with this a similar creature you know it's it's very difficult to argue against i think the evidence is out there for bigfoot anyway but yeah, it's difficult it to argue against the creature when you're looking at things like this mm-hmm. when you're seeing the same behaviors you know it'd be very strange if 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 you knew the behavior of a shark say in in our waters um and you knew to stay away from sharks because they're certain da- dangerous at certain times. Yeah, that sort of thing. And you go to another country that has sharks, and and they don't exhibit the same behaviour. Would be would be weird. Weird. Yeah. yeah. And and we and again, if people were saying we have got a shark over here, it does all these strange things and that. Then maybe you'd think, well, oh, have the really because you know, mm. you know what I mean? Because it's outside the box. And again, look at look at what I'm telling you here. These things are pretty regular pop up in any sort of Bigfoot encounter you want to look at, wherever you want to look at, really. But I'm predominantly talking, I'm contrasting between America and and Russia, obviously. Mm. Anyway, so this thing stood looking at the camp and um, eventually Badin says, look, you know, we need to capture this. We we can't let this go. No. That's kind of what we're here for. Um, When you, you know, at this point, he's realised that it's not a man. It's, it is a creature. And uh, anyway, so the fastest guy in the uh, troop was sent to capture this thing. Uh, and he came back empty-handed, essentially. But the time he got over that dune, this thing was nowhere to be seen. Uh, and he, he made a comment, basically, of, like, there's nowhere this thing could go. Or you'd think, at our speed. Yeah. Um, but obviously, we're talking about a lot th- this creature having, yeah, ec- you know, extraordinary speed. And that comes up again, I think, later on. But so anyway... 
he sits at the campfire that night and the the men are shaken the men that he's with and they're you know predominantly people from the area and he asks them about this and they start telling him stories um about people that run into him their society that sort of thing and they did say that this they call the almas all right mm-hmm. so he comes back to russia uh he writes this report it's in 1908 and it's met with skepticism as you can imagine to the point where he was actually going to be revoked from the Ge- geographic society of russia if he didn't omit this account from his from his uh, report essentially which is odd, isn't it? But yeah, you know, you couldn't. I could understand from the Russians' point of view of his Soviet Union, then, wouldn't it? But you can understand mm. from their point of view that they didn't want one of their top academics to be saying some crazy shit because the, the West, the rest of us, might look at that and go, "Fucking, they're, they're scientists are nuts." Which we would have. Which done. we do, but the problem, the problem you've got is that their scientists were looking into this. Yeah, yeah. our scientists are not looking into this. Yeah. All right, with a few exceptions, you know, um, Dr. Benganigal, um, you know, um, what's the guy who does the feet? I can't remember his fucking name off the top of my head now. That's really weird. Meldew, Dr. Meldew, people like that, you know, who are academics in their own right. Um, Kraus, I think he was he was one as well, but they're taking, them, they're taking it on themselves. Yeah. All right, to look into this. They're not, the university is not paying for it, okay? No, it's not a whole field. Looking Whereas in it. Russia, there was a little bit more acceptance to look into this creature f- for a time. All right, so the word got around Mongolia um, that there was a, this guy was in charge of um, looking at this creature and that the fact that it had been sort of poo-pooed back in Russia. So the guy called um, Chisben Susurano, Susurano. Right. We'll go with that. Yeah, we'll go with that. <laughs> I always struggle with these Russian names, you know. But he, he was, uh, well, Mongolian, actually. And he, obviously, he brought, he'd been brought up there listening to the natives um, talk about the Almas. And he'd recorded a lot of encounters. In, it's basically, it took 10 years to record encounters. And where he could, he took descriptions of the creature and he took drawings. He made drawings of the creature. All right. Right. So he could compare from person to person and again he was finding that more often than not it was identical things and identical uh, points of view points of reference on the creature what it did behaviours were consistent between different tribes that he was meeting because remember it's still the Mongol society was still sort of like a nomadic society then yeah um, I suppose it still is to this it is to this day um, Obviously, part the part that's been incorporated by China won't be so much, but the, the rest of it is just in the wilderness. Same like you get in, um, you still get Eskimos and things like that, don't you? Which is a similar sort of lifestyle. Uh, he also made a map uh, and pl- and drew on the map where the sightings were seen when the people, you know, where the people had seen them, which again is quite clever. Yeah. Um, so this is sort of nineteen twenties we're talking about now. At the point where Stalin sort of rose to power and he started to make things uh, forbidden, all right, and essentially you were sent to the gulag if you mentioned shit like this. Yeah. All right, so Russia's gone from a point of sort of accepting this and actually sending scientists to look into it to a point of, no, you don't talk about this shit anymore. There was lots of things that um, Stalin 
put there was actually like a mandate that was sent down from him where certain things were off limits. All right, yes. this was one of them. Okay, so there was a Red Army detachment under the command of General Mikhail Polint. Fucking names, General. I'm just calling him General John, but his name was Polinsky. Polinsky, yeah, Mikhail General. Mikhail Polinsky. Let's go with that. Right. Okay. All right. And, and he was basically sent to rid mountain hiding spots of the White Army. So these were the, the, the White Army were like the opposition to Stalin, the, you know, the like, um, mm. the resistance, if you will. So, so essentially he was part of the Red Army. He was sent up there to get rid of this, um, resistance. The guerrilla, there was basically guerrilla fighters at that point. And they found encampments, uh, and they found a lot of them in caves. All right. So there was exploring. You can imagine this army was going from cave to cave to try and rid these people. And they found a particular cave, and they heard somebody inside. Um, They called in for for these people to come out, and this creature came out and was immediately shot by the the soldiers. Uh, When they went to check it, for for it being a rebel soldier is what they thought. On close examination, they found that it wasn't even a man. All right, it was a muscular creature covered in thick hair from head to toe. Its face was human-like with a prominent brow uh, brow ridge, a sloping forehead, wide flat nose. All right, and the the account was actually recorded in the official battlefield report. Uh, the story goes that the men piled rocks upon the creature outside the cave. That's how they basically buried it. Right, okay. Because um, it wasn't the fact that they was giving it a dignified burial. It was that they was camping there for a while and they couldn't look at the fucking thing. <laughs> right? It, okay. It was a, so odd to their paradigm. Yeah. That they basically put stones on it to hide the fucking thing. Right? Uh, <laughs> nice so, you know, the sound's done it like a dignified burial and what it wasn't. Yeah. Anyway, so... um there was another official report, and this is this report. Sorry, and this is 1941. So this is shortly after the Germans have invaded the Soviet Union. Uh, General Kapachin uh, was called to look at a German spy who had been captured in the Caucasus Mountains. Uh, when the general entered the tent, he could see that this was no man. All right, the creature was covered in head to toe in long hair. He, he would write this in his report that he stood before it like a giant with a mighty chest thrust forward, and he questioned the creature, but he said the, que- the the creature was either unwilling or unable to speak. Hmm. He just looked back at him with the eyes of an animal. Um, the the general asked the natives what this was, and he was told that it was the Almas. Uh, being wartime, the creature was executed as a German spy because <laughs> that's what German looks like. Well, some of the women look like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, is that the French? You don't shave. I think it's both. Yeah, it's well, just a European thing. So, yeah, so the creature was executed as a spy, which is fucking ridiculous, but, you know... Hilarious, yeah. though. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, you probably wouldn't let it out of the cage at that point anyway, would you? But you're probably no. not so happy. Uh, right, so fast forward and again, so we're 1955. So we're coming quite... This is quite modern now. I mean, the war is mm. not that long ago, 41. No, um, not really. So we're looking at 1955. A book was published called The Long Walk, and this is a true story of a trek to freedom by Salo Zal Zalomir Salvid. We'll go with that. 
bright chick, um, which is about his six-month escape from a Siberian gulag in 1941, and a sub- subsequent trike trek of four thousand miles. Uh, I think there was him and six men. They actually escaped this gulag and and they basically headed for safety. Four thousand miles. That's a long way. It's a fucking long way. That's here to America. Yeah, and the book and the book was called The Long Walk. And it's still available if people want to check it out, and I think it'd be worth. I wonder if walk. there's a video on this, or a documentary. I'm going to check that out. That sounds me. But in the in the uh, journey, he actually went through Siberia. He went into the Gobi Desert again, Himalayas. Uh, he actually crossed the Himalayas to get into British India at the time, and that's basically where he was rescued. Uh, uh, that was safety for him. Okay, mm. so you can imagine this book was. Um, you know, got quite a f- a lot of people were interested in it at the time. So there was a particular passage in this book where he 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 details seeing one of these creatures. Right. So he says in in the mountains of um, Siberia they faced um, this creature, but they couldn't see. You know, much detail. They said that the the head of this thing was squarish. Uh, its ears must have been close to its skull because there was no projection from the silhouette against the snow. The shoulders sloped sharply down towards a powerful chest. Um, the arms were long and the wrists reached the level of the knees. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, they all decided between them that what they were examining had never been previously experienced in the wild or in zoos or in any literature that they sort of scene between them yeah um the thing was covered in two distinct kinds of hairs this is interesting because he says there was a reddish hair which gave the characteristic color forming a tight close fair against the body mingled in with a slight grayish tinge and which uh, was only visible when caught by the light um which is interesting because we find that in modern day reports people mm. say like the creature was reddish brown, more of an auburn, like an orangutan type mm. color, and then it turned to the side, or it, or it stepped back into the darkness, and it went, it it almost went black against, the, you know, almost. It's like, almost like a camouflage. Yeah, it is a camouflage. Yeah. It disappeared at that point, you know. Do you think they can? Do you think it's something they turn on, or do you think? No, it's no, something? I think it's like he said there. He's he's actually saw it against the snow, and you could see the difference in the color when it was moving. Yeah, you know, and it, so he was in a very unique position to see that most people would see this creature Front in on. and out the forest line that yeah. sort of thing you know oh, what I mean yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you um, mean. so they maybe not observe that but this isn't you know he's observed this and I think that was quite interesting that he put that in there and remember his books about him his escape from the gulag it's nothing to do with these creatures so it's not this is not a no you know it's not put in there for shits and giggles this is something that he, that it's happened relevant yeah yeah um so again, he says like oh, for years this remained a mystery to th- the men in question, but recently he's read the, about scientific expeditions to discover the abominable snowman at the time in the Himalayas, and uh, he thinks that this creature fit that native what they call the native hillman. He thinks this creature what he saw fits that description. Um, obviously different now because people believe that the abominable snowman uh, or the the yeti uh, is probably a descendant of a bear because they have bears up there. Yeah. And they think it might be an ancient bear. There was actually uh, hair samples that were found that came back as ancient bear. Hmm. Um, but again, that could have been from 
the permafrost or something like that. You know where the ice is melted and there's, the body's been exposed to the thing and then yeah. someone's found the hair. Or it could be that the creature's there and it's, it's an ancient bear. I'm just going to have a sip of this. Mm. Medicinal. Positive minds, positive vibes, positive life. There you go. So, yeah. anyway, where was I? Do, 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 do. So, yeah, so done that. So, we're up to 1957 now, and a hydrologist, all right, which I presume is someone that looks for underground water or something, Alexander Pronin, right, he had two encounters. And the, um, again, the, the academic science um, that he worked for, they didn't like this. All right. They weren't a fan of him running around telling people that he'd seen these creatures. I um, can imagine. Yeah, and he called it the snowman. So, you've got that, right? And then, he, well, like I say, he called it the snowman. Um, There was a guy called Boris Prozhenev. Uh, it was a scientist, the Soviet Academic of Sciences, and he was basically tasked at this point to go and search for this creature, um, doing some digging around. He actually he found out about the guy that we spoke about before, uh, the Baron, Baronin, who had actually been um, put in the gulag for coming out with this stuff and never seen again. So he found a descendant, like he found someone that worked under him as a protege type thing, a guy by the name of uh, YB Richin, and he was able to contact him, and this guy had a lot of the information, including some reports of Boronin's encounter, which we've already spoke about, yeah. um, which were not public at the time. But this guy had records of it, and he was, and he said to him, I think you're the last person alive that knows this stuff, and, he, and this, Boronin, uh, this Richin said, yeah, you know, I am. So again, at this point, there was um, um, another team sent out to look into this and this is right at the same time 1959 as the Diatlov Pass incident right all right which most people listening will be familiar with but mm. it's essentially a group of hikers that uh, went up um, a particular mountain to the guy in charge who was Diatlov was essentially like an instructor and right. he was taking to get his badges he was taking an expedition these are his friends though but he was taking an expedition up a particular treacherous mountain to get a stif- uh, his final badge if you like if you yeah. can conquer it that sort of thing so it's a meticulous plan as you can imagine it laid out uh, I'm obviously doing this in brief but it's a meticulous plan laid out this is what you're going to do so many days here they're going to leave food here they're going to travel up here travel back pick the food up and use that on the way out um, anyway something happened along the way which diverted him from this path uh, he ended up camping on the hillside and the tent was found with um, cuts in it and allegedly done from the inside uh, and they were all found dead uh, in okay. various different ways. And We did a show on this and I'm sort of reevaluating my um, belief on this because in that show that we did on this, I sort of suggested that it was probably the locals because they had encounter with locals. The locals weren't particularly friendly to outsiders. I mean, they actually started, started, stayed at a camp with them, so they weren't that, mm. you know, horrible. But 
But I, I sort of came to the conclusion that something had deviated him from his path. He wouldn't, you know, as a as a guide in a situation like this, you're not going to deviate from the path. No, there's loads of reasons for that. Um, you know, if something goes wrong and people come to rescue you, look for you, that sort of thing, they need to know where you was. The reason you you set out a, uh, uh, you know, like this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to be back in so many days. It's for those reasons. You know? Absolutely. And a yeah, guy who's wanna... trying to get his badges, right, <laughs> is is very unlikely to deviate from a plan unless there's a really, really big reason he can't can't follow it, right? And his idea was to camp in this forest at the foot of the mountain. Um, and for whatever reason, he chose not to camp in this forest at the bottom of the mountain and, and, climb, and set his tent up high up on the hillside of the mountain overlooking this forest. So there must have been something in that forest... Right? Yeah, which kept him out of there or kept them out of there and I think it was these creatures actually looking at it now well it kind of makes sense you know if you like you said you, you, you're you not going to deviate from that no. path it's just not, not put yourself in a disadvantage as well you don't count no. on a hillside do you no no you don't but they got there they'd set out them. you know they obviously set out in the time that was going to get there say we'll travel by here and by five, four or five o'clock in the afternoon we'll be here We'll set up tent for the night, that sort of thing. So by the time they got there, and they'd given themselves the time to get the tent ready, and they seen these whatever was in that forest, and they decided to to camp in a different spot. Anyway, the, the long and short of it is, I'm sure we can go into this in more detail, but the long and short of that um, case is that everyone was found dead. Um, there was actually a couple of people with um, crushed um, rib cages, things like that, which was consistent with being in a car crash. Um, that's the force we're talking about. Wow! Um, and it actually turns out in this report, the 1959 report that the um, that uh, this committee did, it actually seemed as though the people had been bashed against trees. Ow. So you imagine picking up someone by the legs and swinging them against a tree. That's a horrible way to. Yeah, go. that's because the flesh was actually found in the tree bark, right? Ooh. Which gives you some some idea of the force that we're talking about here, and. Again, I I originally thought this was before seeing this report. I originally thought this was the natives had seen their ass with these people, blah blah blah. Now I'm not so fucking sure. I mean that that doesn't no, sound it doesn't like, sound like it, does it? No, I mean I suppose two people, one at each end, could use someone like it. You know, like it's swing people, but that yeah, but even gonna that sort you're of force, that sort of force, are you? You know, you'd struggle to do it with a an infant. I would say so. Do you know so, what I mean? Let alone a fully grown man. This team looked into that and they thought that it could have been these creatures as well, right? Yeah. Um, they also came across a case in uh, of what they called Zaina. Um, and Zaina lived in a village in the mountains there. And essentially what had happened is, and there was, a, there was a, um, two people called Brian Sykes Professor Brian Sykes uh, was a uh, again. People talk, talk shit about these people, right? And this what's this was what fucking bores me, because you'll get people talking shit about scientists and that that disagree with the mainstream. Yeah, narrative, right? Again, like we're seeing this in the COVID era, aren't we? There's mm. people, certain doctors, and that disagreeing with it, and they're lambasted, and then it turns out that they're actually true because what they was basing their thing on is education and facts. You know, that don't change. And we've seen this with the Matt Hancock tweets, aren't we? Yes. Um, you know, people were lied to. And the, 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 the premise was that 
he actually says in the text, frighten the pants off them. You know, mm. we've got to frighten them. We've got to get this jab in as many people as possible because that's where the money is, essentially. It's all about money. It's all about control and money. And, all right, there's sinister aspects of the jab and people suddenly, suddenly die and all that stuff. And whether they knew that is debatable. Yeah. Um, but at some point they knew that and they're still rolling it out and they're still rolling it out now. So, anyway, the point is... <laughs> That there's certain scientists that look into this stuff, and if it don't fit the if don't fit the narrative, then they're ridiculed. Yes, because what they're, what they're hoping to do is pour enough shit on these people that no one else will bother. Right. Mm-hmm. So you've got Maria Shackley, um, who looked into this. Doctor Maria Shackley. She is actually a, a, an ordained priest now um, in Yorkshire somewhere. But you, and then you have got Brian Sykes, who was a professor of human genetics, and he should have. And, you know, he should know what he's talking about. So we're talking about uh, Zana, right, or Zana. And essentially what had happened is there was a, a creature. The, the a hunting party had gone out. And what uh, by all accounts, what they did, they dug like a, a pit. So you see like on the Indiana Jones movies, that sort of shit. They dug mm. a pit, covered it over with branches, leaves. And the idea was that an animal would fall in the pit. All right, you come along, capture the animal. Right, it's fairly basic. Yeah, you know, uh, hunting. Anyway, there was obviously looking for, you know, pigs, deer, whatever it was that was looking for. But they actually captured a, a wild man. Okay. All right, and incidentally, the uh, I must point out that um, the the pit was lined with lime. The walls of the pit were lined with lime to make it very difficult to climb out. Yeah, because if what if lime uh, gets wet it's it's, it's almost impossible yeah. that's the only reason this creature couldn't get out because i think the pit wasn't that deep but with the with the walls being the way they were this creature just got exhausted couldn't, yeah couldn't get out when they came upon it it was basically cowering in the corner of this pit um exhausted um anyway they captured it took it back to the village uh put it in a cage and it was said that she she was a female and, and like i said to give her the name zana but she, it was said that she would howl all night, just howl. You know, like people report like nowadays, Bigfoot mm-hmm. howling. Well, that's what she did. And she also tried to dig away under and out the cage, like a burrow. Right. And she did, eventually she dug a hole, and that's what she'd sleep in. So that again, that's a little interesting tidbit in it that you know these creatures dig holes to sleep in. Mm. You know, maybe we, yeah, because when you think about why don't we find these creatures, well. Oh, there you go. And again, they would probably do that in the daytime rather than the nighttime because she was more active at nighttime yeah. than daytime. But eventually, the um, she'd only eat raw meat, right? Okay. Um, and eventually, the, the villagers were able to uh, what do you call it? Like um, tamer, if that's if that's the right okay. word. So uh, over time, you know, by giving her treats and stuff like that, and. Um, they were eventually able to tame her. And apparently, she was sort of six foot ish tall, broad, covered in hair from head to toe. Again, the same description we had before: sloping forehead, uh, prominent brow, no hair on the cheeks. Um, she had a mustache, um, but apparently, she was still fuckable because <laughs> the, the, uh, <laughs> I know, yeah, the villagers, the was been not going on there because people get a drunk and then go through her. Right, um, which is odd. Um, a little bit, yeah, yeah. Not gonna, not gonna lie. That's... And she actually, 
from these encounters, she was able to, she actually uh, gave birth to five or six children. Now, the first couple of children that she had, she took down to the river to wash off. This must be something that they do. Um, mm. She took down to the river to wash off and obviously killed the infants because it's probably because the, the genetics were not robust enough. So these two of these creatures mating probably produce a very different offspring to what one of these creatures and a human produce, right? Yeah. Because our babies are fucking useless when they come out, aren't they? Oh, yeah, they are. You're going to put that in a river, it's fucked, isn't it? Yes. So, um, you know, that's what she was doing, essentially. She was going to the river and, and bathing these things in the river, and she killed the first two, first two children. So then the villagers cottoned on to that and stopped her taking the... The, the the next lot of babies down to the river and yeah. two, two or three of them survived um, and they went on to have children and th- this comes up in a minute with the genetics of uh, Brian Sykes which I'm going to get into but just on air she the strength that she exhibited the people said she could outrun a horse right she could swim a river now this is really interesting because we don't have um aquatic apes so to speak right there's, there's certainly in our genetics, there seems to be some sort of aquatic uh, nature to our genetics. Yes. And we don't know of an aquatic ape, so to speak. Obviously, there's them monkeys that sit in them little geezers in, in Japan or wherever it is. You know, the ones where it's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but they don't swim around generally. They're just sitting in it, keep fucking warm. But this, she was able to swim. And not just swim, she was able to really fucking swim. I mean, dive underwater, swim across the river as fast as... Yeah, nobody could no and, and not only that, but the river there was really fast paced. It's one a stream, this was a fast paced river, and she a, was yeah. still able to cross it with ease because of the power mm. of her. She could climb trees up and down and the, the local um uh, mill, if you like, where the flour was produced, these sacks were I think they were said eighty kilos. Um you know, these big sacks of flour, there's gonna be some weight to them. Yeah. And it said that she was able to carry two of these sacks, one in each hand, and just carry it down a fucking hillside which gives you some power strength brute strength now her offspring the ones that survived there was a guy called uh, one of her I don't know if it was her direct son or if it was the son of the son if you know what I mean Hmm. Um, but her grandchild if you like but Kraut Kraut his name was or Kraut and um, essentially the story goes that he was able to lift a man sitting on a chair right to tell you the strength that he had but not not just lift the man sitting on a chair. Lift the man sitting on a chair with his fucking mouth. He lifted with his mouth. Yeah. So he bite the chair and lift it up in the air. A what? man sitting on it. What the hell? That gives you some idea of the strength. And remember, he's like three steps removed. That's or, mental. Or two steps removed, and he's still got that 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 brute prowess. Strength, yeah. Yeah. Um, so essentially, the the geneticists in Brian uh, Sykes and uh, Maria Shackley, when they went to look at this, they were looking for the body of uh, Zayna. They couldn't find; no one could remember where she was buried, right? But they knew where these these offspring were buried. Yeah. So they was able to um, um, uh exhume these and do DNA tests on them, things like that. And again, the, the DNA so showed to be um, sub-Saharan African, um, it, you know, and partly Neanderthal. It's very different to what you'd expect of the people of that region, right? Yeah. And there was lots of skepticism about this, and you know, people weighed in saying like, uh, 
people must have been captured as slaves and brought up there, and that's why we've got this DNA. Missing out all this other shit that I've just explained. Yeah. Right? Which sort of paints a different, very different picture of... Yeah, it's you know, quite pe- important yeah, stuff to... You ain't going to Africa picking up people from down there, and they're coming up picking people up with fucking the teeth, are So... No, that's not really. Yeah, there's something very different going on here. There was, um, I think I actually took a picture. Let me just check. I'm not sure if I did or not. But, you know, in his report, there was um, so many fundamental differences that, is this it? Yeah, he says, this is uh, Professor Brian Sykes. Remember, he's a a professor of human genetics, right, at Oxford. He said the school discloses a great deal of peculiarity, a certain disharmony, right? This equilibrium equilibrium, in its features, very large dimensions of the facial skeleton, increased development of the contours of the skull, right? And um, it has non-metric features and the skull merits further extended study. Um, There was actually another skull found at the time of Baronin, there was a goat herder or a camel herder. I think it was a goat herder, and he was up in the um, again in, in the the Atlas Mountains or whatever. The, he was a Mongolian, and he came across the body of one of these creatures, and it, he said it was sandy in color. Right. This is in a desert region, and he came across it, and he was so terrified of it, you know, like those guys that put the rocks on it. He actually run away from it. He was camping there the night, but the first night he saw it, he ran away from it and camped and way away from it. And then the next day, he thought, you know, I'm gonna have to grow some balls and go look at this. So yeah, he actually went and had a look at it. And to him, it, it was that it was a legend that they they'd grown up living, uh, listening to like legends of vampires that looked like this. It was almost a yeah. That's what yeah. he thought he'd run across. But then when he examined it further, he realised it was an animal. Um, and that school was kept. And that school made its way to the University of Mongolia. I think that's where... It, oh, South Africa. I can't remember now. But wherever it went, no, nobody knows what, what happened to it, basically. So it was there, and it went, and then it's gone. And it's disappeared. Yeah. Um. Again, this school, this school we're talking about here of this offspring of Zena, it was said that, in this respect, the description of the Neanderthal man fits the Almas really quite well. If you imagine that they could get into the high mountain areas, there is no reason why they shouldn't be able to uh, be breeding populations and the Andaful man still surviving. Um, in And indeed, this seems more likely than the alternative, which is that a very successful species of man suddenly became extinct, extinct for no apparent reason. I think that was Maria uh, Shackley who said that. She obviously investigated this. So what we're talking about here is that we're told that Neanderthals just died out. Yeah. Right? Um, and there's, there's various different reasons for that. Obviously, we need to get the um, Africans killing all the white people um, off. That's one of the reasons given the different uh, species. Uh, or we get, like, um, the run out of food source. There was a cataclysm. Uh, I think it was a volcano, and it it dumped four or five inches of ash, basically all over the Neanderthal Valley. Basically, Europe um, was covered in this ash to four or five inches. Now, if you're a forager, right? Yeah. And you're foraging for food that predominantly grows on the ground, 
at certain times of the year. Because obviously when they could catch animals, they would kill animals. But if there was foraging, um, then obviously this makes it very difficult. Yeah. And the, the, essentially the belief is that they basically starved. Starved. Um, obviously places that were sort of more secluded from this, like Gibraltar, mm-hmm. uh, was one of the last vestiges of Neanderthals. And that and maybe there was eating a lot more seafood there. And right. so it was less affected by this, but they eventually died out because of um, probably uh, genetic diversity or the um, modern humans caught up with them. Uh, yeah. The African, you know, the, the, the wiped them out, whatever. But, but what these are proposing is that in the high mountain areas where these things are predominantly seen nowadays, uh, outside of uh, like America, like I say, although they are seen on mountains a lot in America, Maybe these things could still be living up there, and yeah. obviously, because we're not talking very far away, are we? You know, we're talking about nineteen fifty-eight things like that. Yeah, so still out there. Uh, I don't think it's out the realms of possibility. No, I don't um, think it is at all. Some of the sightings, particularly the sightings that we get in the UK, seem to show, you know, seem to show uh, me that the the ones that we see here seem to be more Neanderthal-like, mm. right? Yeah, I, th- um, I think that. That's why, I mean, we obviously you hear the, the Bigfoot story, you know, things like that, but I always find the wild man, that, I mean, I don't know if that's more of a British yeah, connotation, on, yeah. but that, to me, seems a lot yeah. more plausible. Do you know what I mean? That is, to me, a, a Neanderthal. Yeah, and I think that's what we're looking at here. These, these seem to be... Again, uh, this Quate skull um, showed a combination of both. It showed it showed the uh, an original com- combination of modern and ancient features. So there was certain like um, there was certain holes in it that were not they're not in our skull. That they're for obviously different yeah uh, sensors or whatever these creatures had that we don't generally have. It had um, obviously his bone structure was more dense. Like I say about him picking up the um, the chair, things like that. So there was obviously something going on with his genetics, but and but just to finish, really, because um, maybe I've like given enough case here where people might think that these Neanderthals could still be around. I think it's highly likely, and, and again, you, I always go back to the story when when we talk about Bigfoots, and you get a lot of skeptics and things like that and I'll always go back to that story of um Prince Philip mm. in China um and he when he went out in the 19 1940s 1950s um and went out and found a panda in the wild and when he came back with evidence that a panda existed nobody believed in in sort of in Britain at least I don't know about the rest of Europe but in Britain that there is a bear that lives in China that is black and white and eats only wood. No one believed it. Um, and again, that might be due to the fact that they're, you know, they're quite secluded animals, but you're talking 1950s here and now pandas are just, you know, no one, no one disputes whether a panda exists. No, it's like the, uh, there's, there's an ape called the Billy Ape, which essentially is like a seven foot tall silver chimpanzee that lives in the treetops. Very rarely comes down to the ground. Mm. You know, we know that lives in the Congo. There's pictures, like three or four pictures of it, and maybe one bone. Yeah. But that's enough, yeah. you know. There seems to be a lot more evidence to this, but 
for whatever reason, this is so closely linked to us. I don't think we like to talk about it. And there's, there must be a reason. And again, we talked about the, the you know, for me, the Anunnaki and stuff like that. Yeah, and I think no. that maybe plays into this. Yeah. I, I think I'm going to, I'm going to rehash that show. I, um, yeah, I think we could do that quite yeah, easily. Because that's, I think there's a lot to that, but. I'm well behind that theory. Yeah. Seems, seems to me that there's, there's something about our genetics that's just not weighing up. No. You know. Um, but incidentally, I was watching a program, a documentary about Neanderthals and the, the intelligence of these creatures. Because again, if we're comparing these to Bigfoot in, in this example, um, we don't run across Bigfoot very often and they seem to be able to be elusive and, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff. And maybe it's just the times of day that they're out and mm. so not many people are out. That sort of stuff. If they're nocturnal, for example, I've got no idea, but, um, I would say there's a certain degree of intelligence there. And I was watching a program on the Underfalls and it was basically showing you that they lived in maybe, as best guess, we can sort of think that they might have lived in groups of maybe up to 20. Yeah, probably hmm. less than that, more like family groups. But they had an understanding about genetic diversity and they would meet every so often at a particular place in um, somewhere in France, there's a big rock there. And they used to meet there and basically swap people so to swap a female for another female from another tribe that's sort well, of like thing. the original days keys in a bowl sort of thing that sort of yeah. thing yeah but take them back with them so yeah. they become part of that group so the diversity of the group would keep going hmm. and and i mean to that that shows some sort of well, it level shows intelligence. At, a, at a very but there was age. there was a cave right and they found this um because they they found examples of because uh, their tool making was out of this world compared to ours, and they found examples of um, using birch birch tar. Right. Okay. Um, Was that for like? Um, yeah, for gluing like implements yeah. on then the spears or arrow arrowheads or whatever. I mean they, but the the problem with the tar is not that that they was using it it's the process of making it so obviously at the same time we'd be using things we could readily get available like uh, maybe like there'd be like a tree with a certain um, sap. sap that was yeah. run out of it we'd use that or certain elements of animals that we'd bake up that sort of thing but for the tar for the process of the tar it's almost like it's, it is chemistry and mm. these things were able to these Neanderthals were able to exhibit this and I'll give you an example so in this cave, they basically found a fire pit, right? And when they ex- excavated the fire pit, they found uh, an eggshell, right? A whole egg with, like, the top the top of the egg. If you imagine two eggs with the top carved out, and essentially what they used to do, they used to put uh, the, the back of um, birch inside one of the eggs. So stuff the egg full of birch, right? Yeah. And put that egg on top of the other egg. Yeah, so they put these two egg so fill one full of birch put that egg over the egg with a hole so you imagine like the figure of eight now one on top yeah. of the other buried that put a fire on top and then it, it took a long time for this fire to to do the process but essentially they covered the eggs up with sand and that so there was no oxygen getting in there because if you get any oxygen in there the tower won't make won't form so th- then they burnt the fire on top and eventually the heat would uh, cause the tar to leach out of the birch bag and into the bottom egg and then they used that tar from the bottom egg to, to fix the fucking arrowheads or spare points or whatever. That is That's, that's a chemical process. Yeah. That's ridiculous. That's very advanced. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, that's not something you stumble across. No, you it's know, not. There's something going on there with these creatures. And can they elude us? I'm Based on that, yes. I'm saying yes. They've yeah. got a hell of a lot of intelligence that we give them credit for. Yeah, I agree. But essentially, that's it. So... Let us know, you know, do you think Neanderthals exist out there? You can let us know, you know, go on at you know, Grimberian Clothing on Twitter. You can let us know on there. We've got the email, which is uh, supernaturalproductgmail.com. Go and check out our T-shirts. Help us out if you can. Obviously, we've got the um, um, buyers of coffee. Yeah, yeah. You know, we'll put that link in the description as well. You know, the, all these ways you can help us. And, you know, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe. That helps us massively. Leave reviews, all that good shit. But get in touch. Let us know. That's the that's the most important. Yeah, thing. that's something. I think that's the biggest thing. You know, we we're noticing there's a a lot of shows out there, and I'm assuming a lot of guys listening to this listen to other paranormal shows out there. Um, and we're finding a lot of paranormal shows getting in contact. Going, I've had this question. I've had that question. I've had this. I've had that. We we don't get very much. So, um. I don't know, maybe it's because we're British and a lot of these other shows are American. Yeah. Um, and if that is the case, you know, I know we have this attitude in Britain that we're not approachable, but we are. So, you know, send us a message and we'd like you guys to get in contact with us as much as you are with these other shows, just because, you know, it, it it's better. You know, we can, we can make better shows uh, with your guys' input. So get in touch. Facebook's the easiest way. Um, like I said, obviously we've yeah, got yeah. the the Twitter account as well. Um, but yeah, get get in touch with us. Drop us an email, anything like that. Um, for me, the biggest thing um, is sharing the show. Get yourselves, you know, find share, a show that you like, share it, subscribe to like, us, all that stuff. Yeah. yeah, all the all the basic stuff that. that obviously, we- if if you can double our, and it's on you really, that you guys listening, if you enjoy anything of the show, and you don't have to, you know, we're not not it don't cost you anything, so. Yeah, only time. So if you can share the show and double our, our, yeah. our subscription fan base, then obviously that helps us do what we need to do. Yeah, and, you know, we like can say, find we're, more time to. Yeah, we haven't been able to get time because we have to do other things. Yeah, you know, which is a ball lake. Um, yeah, but we are going to do as, as many as we can absolutely. now. Try and get back to it. So but the number one way you can really, like I say, help us is obviously buy us a coffee. That's that's great. But you but check out the t shirts. Like, you know, I can't stress that enough. Mm. You know. If you haven't looked at them, the link is in the description. Go go and check it out. If not, just type into Google or whatever, Grimbarian Clothing. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're pretty... What's that? G-R-I-M-B-A-R-I-A-N. Grimbarian. Um, yeah, Grimbarian Clothing. So don't forget, you know, because I know a lot of people listen on, like, commute and listen while they're traveling, yeah. that sort of thing, and then they get home and they forget all about it. Don't forget, you know, right on your fucking skin, you know, do something now yeah. to remember that. I've said this, go and check the fucking t-shirts out. Ah! Yeah, they are good as well, to be fair. They are good, yeah. They are good. But again, if there's something you want in a different color or a slightly different design or whatever it is, we can accommodate. It's not, there's not what's on there is that, you know, if there's something slightly different or a different phrase you want, let us know. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, and any of the other channels that you know we said you can let us know. So, but yeah, that Thanks. being said, we've got to crack on because it is snowing and we've got a long journey ahead of us. So, thank you for thank listening. You very much for listening. Subscribe, all that good shit, and uh, we will see you on the other side. Well, they've gone. No, just for now. It wasn't the right time for us to meet. But there'll be other nights, other stars for us to watch. I'll be back.